you know, I had maybe a hundred or a hundred and fifty failed attempts behind me, you know, of me saying, that's it, no more. I'm not doing it today. I honestly can't say what the difference was that one time, but but that one time I was well and truly freaking done. And I just said to my wife, I have to get help. It's out of control. I can't, you know, I can't control it. And it was terrifying. Hey, everybody, welcome to the Addiction Unlimited podcast, where you get to learn everything you want to know about addiction and recovery. I'm your host, Angela Pugh, co-founder of Kansas City Recovery, life coach, and recovering alcoholic. To learn more about me, you can listen to episode zero on your podcast app or find us on the web at addictionunlimited.com. Hi, Will. Thank you so much for coming on and doing this show with me. It's so good to see you. Hey, Angela. Good to see you too. Take a couple of minutes and tell everybody a little bit about you and what you do. Thank you. So my name is Will Thatcher, and I'm an author of addiction fiction novels. I'm also an addiction fiction nerd and fan, and um, that's my little world. You know, I'm a, I'm a sober guy, and um, I love these stories. I'm a big, lifelong, avid reader, and you know, I just sort of found this space, which there's really not that much in it. You know, there are a handful of authors that have done some great work. And uh, I'm passionate about it. And, um, you know, so that, that's how I'm spending my time these days. You know, what I love about this is it's not the typical books that you get in the recovery space, right? It's not self-help based. It's not personal story based. It's not a memoir or a how-to or a guide, right? This is really reading for enjoyment. Totally. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And, you know, there are so many good books that are in the categories that you just listed. Um, and there are new ones out every year, and it's very well represented. Personally, you know, I love fiction. You know, it's, it's, you know, it's something that I grew up with. I was, I always had a book in my hands. And from my perspective, it's 90% enjoyment. And there is a 10%, you know, value in terms of, you know, relating this to my recovery, you know, reading about people who are going through the same types of things, albeit in much more extreme circumstances in my books, you know, relating that back to my own recovery. You know, when we watch a, a movie, for example, that has characters in recovery or, or in active addiction, you know, I have a very direct emotional reaction to that because I've lived through that pain and I can, you know, it's, I won't quite call it a spiritual experience, but certainly I'll have an emotional experience, a connection, you know, to those characters. So I do think that there is some little residual benefit, you know, to, to my recovery when I read these books. Yeah, I would agree with that for sure. And I think the audience can relate to this also in that, you know, recovery can be heavy work, right? Like it takes, especially in the beginning, it takes so much of you and your time and your energy, and it can start to feel very overwhelming. So to not constantly be immersed in the self-help, the <laughs> personal development, sobriety, recovery, change your life, get your act together, to have something that has some pieces of that in the familiarity of recovery and recovery language, but to have it be just for enjoyment, I think is so powerful. And I'm really excited to watch this category grow. 
It's nice to hear you say that. Um, and I, I personally agree with that entirely. You know, there, this is deadly serious stuff, you know, literally. Yeah. Um, but also, you know, I'm a, I'm a big AA guy, you know, and we always say there has to be some fun in it, yes. you know, or else people aren't going to want it. And so, you know, I think that this is a way to, you know, keep a foot in the work, keep the, the themes and the ideas, you know, that you're trying to bring into your mind, you're trying to bring into your life and take a little bit of a break from the, you know, from, from the hardcore recovery aspect of it. I, I do think, I think it's worth mentioning that a lot of what I write is definitely not so much for, you know, people like in their first three or six months of recovery, there are much better things that those people should be reading, <laughs> you know, you know, than fiction, you know, frankly, um, their lives are at stake. You know, my work is really much more for people who have a little bit of sobriety under their belts. They're living a sober life and they want to relate to and hear stories about, you know, sober characters that are out there. All of my stories, I'm, I'm getting ready to publish my second novel now. And what, what I write about is what's interesting to me, right? What's kind of going on in my life and in my head, which are kind of like next step sober problems. You know, okay, like you got sober, your life got good, then what? You know, because that's that's kind of what I'm interested in at this point, and that's what a lot of my characters go through. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that, and it, it reminds me of when I was new. I'm a 12 step person, also, and I remember when I was really new, sitting in those rooms, and and for several months, right, like not understanding a lot of the lingo and like the one-liners. And now I love those things, right? Because I've been in it for a hundred years and it all makes sense to me. And it's this beautiful sort of shorthand, you know, like you can pop out this one-liner and it has so much profound meaning. Once you get it, it, it simplifies things. But when I was new sitting in there, I was like, what the hell are these people talking about? You know, I just didn't understand those things. So I appreciate you pointing that out, that that there is some depth of knowledge, but I think it can also bring some really great familiarity to the recovery world and some of that terminology and what it means, you know? So I think it could go both ways, but you definitely, um, you definitely want to have some basic understanding of a sober life. Yeah. I mean, that, that's why, you know, everybody recommends what they recommend to the, to the newcomer, right? right? 90 and 90, there's an immersion you know, that should happen in the beginning so that, you know, to your point, you start to speak the language, yeah. you know, and you start to think in those terms, you know, and then from that point on, you know, yes, you, you know, you don't have to necessarily, um, you know, go to a meeting or two or three a day like I did, um, you know, for my first three to six months in, in sobriety. Yeah, for sure. So let's talk a little bit about your personal journey. Like, what was it for you? At what point did you recognize that you really had a problem? Um, I mean, I knew I had a problem for a good year or two before the rest of the world was rudely introduced to it. Um, <laughs> you know, my problem came to light during a family vacation. And I've, I've actually heard a couple of other people tell versions of this story in the rooms, which is, which was gratifying to me. You know, I had spent the last really year, year and a half of my, of my using and drinking in isolation. And I had gotten very good at hiding away from my family and from friends and, you know, doing my thing, doing at, at that time, what I thought of as whatever I had to do to get through the day, right. Um, surviving in, in this head of mine. 
And then we booked a vacation. I went away with not just my direct family, but my extended family for two weeks. Um, and there was no hiding. <laughs> there was no, you know, sitting in my office, you know, behind two closed doors and it was unmanageable. And so I ran around for the first half of it, trying to keep a buzz going, trying to figure out a way to to do this. And it just became clear that, you know, not just to me, but to everybody else that this was a real problem and, and it needed to be addressed. And it was really humiliating to have that happen in such a public way, but probably the best thing that could have happened. What did you do like when you when you really understood, okay, this has to stop, right? We get to that, what I call, what everybody refers to as that sort of rock bottom moment. And just to clarify, because there is a misconception about rock bottom, rock bottom doesn't have to be a huge extravagant event. Rock bottom is just the very moment you hit in your head that you're like, oh my gosh, I cannot live like this anymore. Something has to change. So you have that epiphany. What was your next thought and next action to get started in making the change? Well, you know, I had maybe a hundred or a hundred and fifty failed attempts behind me, you know, of me saying, that's it, no more. I'm not doing it today. I honestly can't say what the difference was that one time, but but that one time I was well and truly freaking done. And I just said to my wife, I have to get help. It's out of control. I can't, you know, I can't control it. You know, it's it's totally out of my hands. You know, whatever happens, happens. And it was terrifying. So, you know, we came home, you know, from the vacation. And my plan was to get myself into a rehab, you know, go spend 28 days somewhere and let them tell me what to do, you know, like, but in the meantime, I decided to hit a couple of AA meetings, you know, while I got that all sorted out. I have a good uh, close cousin who's in recovery, who's a huge AA proponent. I actually have two, uh, two cousins, both of whom I adore um, and whose lives are incredible, you know, because of recovery. And they always talk about AA. I guess they talked about it in front of me for a reason. <laughs> uh, but, you know. We call that um, planting seed. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's right. So I went to AA, you know, I sat down in a meeting and, um, you know, I heard my first couple of sober stories and I was hooked. You know, I, the, that's what really, I tell people that's what got me sober was the stories, you know, that I heard in AA before there was fellowship, before there were steps, before there was service, you know, any of the other, you know, key kind of aspects of recovery before I even knew what those things were. You know, I heard those stories. I read myself into every one of them, even if the circumstances were totally different from mine. I love the arc of the qualification, you know, what happened, how it is, you know, uh, how it is now, you know, just amazing people being incredibly honest. And I really kind of thought, okay, I can do, if they can do this, I can do this. You know, they sound just like me. You know, they're literally saying the things that are inside my head. You know, so I must be in the right place. I'm not a stupid person. You know, I can connect those two things, right? You know, I, I think I can do this. So I kind of like held off on the rehab thing because I thought I could, you know, the great and powerful me, you know, could could sort this out on my own. But, you know, I just, I did like AA immersion, you know, mm-hmm. like two or three meetings a day. My work was in the garbage at that point. For, turned out to be a blessing in some ways. Um and so I was doing two or three meetings every day and following guys around. And, you know, that was that was how I got sober. 
hearing you say all of that just, again, takes me back to my early days and so much the same experience. And I know a ton of people listening right now are nodding their heads in agreement, right? Where you sit and you hear the other people share. And this isn't a 12-step specific thing. You know, we have the same, people say the same thing in my online community, and I'm sure they have the same experience in other people's online communities. But you hear people share their stories and you hear your story just with their details. And it's it's a really powerful experience when you can sit back and go, oh, wow, I'm not the only one. Because I think in active addiction, it's so isolating. Even if you're not isolated physically, right? Even if you're going out and drinking with people, and you're not isolating in that way. Mentally and emotionally, psychologically, it's so isolating because you feel so different from everyone else. I know for sure I felt like I was the biggest piece of garbage on the planet. I I was disgusting. I thought my drinking was worse than everybody's, right? Because in my immediate friend group, I was probably the worst, you know? And then I got to the rooms and I hear other people talking and sharing those stories. And I was like, oh, wow. Okay. I'm not so isolated. I'm not on this one man island all by myself. I do have people that I can connect with and that truly understand. Yeah, totally. You know, and there's a whole room of room full of them here, you know, nodding along the way that I am. And, you know, for, for me personally, that's how I learn the best is, you know, through stories, you know, which is why I do what I do. Right. You know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a passion of mine, but the thing that you, that you pointed to, you know, just now, um, that was really powerful for me also was just the self-talk that was going mm-hmm. on in my head at that point was so vicious. Mm-hmm. Um, it was so negative, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, I was just brutalizing myself, you know, by the time, you know, I got in there, I, like you said, I was the worst person, Yeah. you know, let's be honest, I did some pretty bad things, yeah. you know, yeah. and so um, there was some evidence available for that, right. <laughs> for that theory, you know, right. but, you know, that's not the whole story, that's you know, right. I was also a sick person, you know, yeah. and I'd also done some really good things, you know, and so being among people who have felt that way in the past and and getting their compassion back in such a direct way was life-saving for me. Yeah. That's so important what you just said too, that it wasn't the whole story. You know, I always say like, we are all a thousand piece puzzle and I definitely have some bad pieces, right? I have some trauma pieces and I have pieces of my personality that can be really unpleasant. You know, (laughs) I have, I have bad pieces, but that's not all my pieces, right? We all have good ones and bad ones. And luckily because of recovery, you know, my bad pieces have gotten a little bit smaller and my good pieces have gotten a little bit bigger. But it's important to remember that, that it's not the whole story. And just like as a sober person, I'm sure you'll agree with this too, being sober a long time, like my sobriety isn't my whole story either, right? There's still all these other pieces and facets of my personality that are super important that I have to be mindful of. And I have to nurture all those pieces too. Totally. Yeah. And, you know, 
maybe the most valuable thing that I learned in early sobriety was to discount my thoughts by about 90%. For whatever sure. Whatever they were. Yes. Whether they were good or bad, you know, I have on the long list of things that I have no control over, my thoughts is at the top of that list. Yeah. You know, and, you know this brain just cranks out bad data, you know, on a on a regular basis. And so the most useful thing that I can do is to understand that, yeah. you know, and when I get an idea or a thought or, you know, whatever it is, say, okay, that's just a thought. That's not a fact. You know, that is not how the world is. That is not how this person is. That is not how I am. It's just the latest thing that comes out of up out of this head of mine. And, you know, I'm tr- I learned to try to lead as much as possible with my heart and not with my head because my heart is much more reliable. My love, you know, my compassion, you know, if I lead with that, I really can't go too wrong. You know, I can't really mess things up too badly. I'd I'd been in the process of messing things up for a long time. So I was in the stop messing things up business at that point. Um, (laughs) And so that was a very good strategy for me for a long time. It remains a good strategy. Yeah. Remembering too, that those thoughts don't go away just because you put down the drink, right? Those thoughts in my head, that self-talk and how vicious it was, didn't magically disappear when I stopped chugging tequila on a daily basis, right? That's the stuff, that's really the recovery part that you have to work on and shift that. And just having that understanding is so powerful too that I, I couldn't trust what my head was telling me early in the game. I needed outside counsel. <laughs> you know, I needed another human that was farther along in the process that I could talk those things through with and go, well, this is what my head's telling me. This is what I think I should do to have that person go, oh no, that's not what you want to do at all. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, no, I totally relate to that. I, you know, for me, the the, uh, the the tone of the voice changed mm. over time. It was less vicious yeah, it was equally unreliable, <laughs> but it was just it, it was not as negative, you know, over time. And that's actually one of the themes in Killing Hurt is that the main character, you know, because he's been sober for a little while, you know, and he feels better, and his life conditions have improved, and you know, he's living a sober life. He becomes much more confident in this voice in his head, and he doesn't realize that it, he's still full of bad ideas. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> you know, and he, and you know, so he has all of these sort of judgments, and you know, all of his thinking, and he's so sure of them because he's a smart guy, and he establishes in the beginning of the book how, you know, how smart he is and, you know, how vital that is to his character, but he's wrong all the time, (laughs) you know? So it's like amazing how often this guy's wrong, you know, and that's me, you know, that's how I walk through the life. So that's kind of what I like to do, you know, with the book is whatever I'm journaling on, whatever I'm 10th stepping, you know, you know, in my recovery, it ends up being sort of embedded in one of these characters somehow. Okay, so you just mentioned 10th stepping. So I want you to explain to everybody what that is because a vast piece of my audience is not going to understand what that means. <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah, so the 10th the step is – so steps 10, 11, and 12 are in AA uh, the, the maintenance steps, meaning these are the steps that you're supposed to do um, for the rest of your life once you once you finish your step work. And so the 10th step is essentially your inventory. You know, So each night, the way that I do inventory is that I sit down with a notebook every night and I just write you know, what's going on in my head. And then I look at 
you know, what's there. And I try to identify where are my, you know, character defects at play in this story that's playing out in, in Will Thatcher's head. Right. Um, and I, you know, I point them out. I'm like, okay, there's some greed, you know, there's some dishonesty, there's some fear, a lot of fear in my inventory. Um, and, you know, I, you know, personally, you know, my next step is, you know, I pray to, to have those removed. And the next day when I'm talking to my sponsor, which I do on a daily basis, I say, okay, a lot of fear, you know, got this crazy thought, got this, said this crazy thing, you know, because I have it written down, you know, from the day before. So that's how I sort of process my, um, you know, my, my thoughts on a daily basis. Yeah. And I so appreciate you in, in just in the vulnerability of pointing out some of those character defects, right? Because a, another term that a lot of people won't understand, but the, the character defects are, like you said, greed, it, um, ego, selfishness, fear, all of those things that we really get caught up in. And that daily inventory of the 10th step is not unlike what you're doing in your head anyway, right? If you've never been to a 12-step meeting, when you get home after your day and you're unwinding and you're getting ready to go to bed, you're thinking through your day and what happened. And did you have some uncomfortable conversations? Did you not handle yourself well? Did you dodge a phone call that you probably should have taken because you were in fear of having the conversation or uncomfortable with it, or it was a bill collector and you've got financial fear, right? You're doing this on a daily basis anyway, as a regular non-12-step person. Um, in the 12 steps, we just make it a point to be more intentional about it and really think through because you have to be able to pick out those patterns about yourself. And one of my favorite things about 12 steps from day one was exactly like everything you just said and your raw honesty about who and what you are. And that was so attractive to me from day one because I had never been honest about much, right? But certainly not about myself and my flaws, right? And then all of a sudden I'm sitting in this room listening to people just really own who they were. And it was so powerful to me. And I knew immediately like I wanted that quality. I wanted to be able to be vulnerable like that and just say, this is who the F I am. And all my pieces aren't great, but I also have some really great ones, you know? Yeah. And the, the, the last part of what you said, I think is super important, which is that I also write down the things that I did well, Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, so that it doesn't look like, you know, the old, you know, Will, um, who's just beating himself up every night on sure. paper. You know, um, but you're you're right. It's it to me. It's it's about the trends. Yes. You know, and so when I see fear, you know, or self centeredness, you know, every night for like four or five days in a row, I'm like, okay, well, maybe there's something going on there, and I should probably, you know, get to the bottom of that. And you know, look, you don't have to do this. It's a question of how happy do you want to be? Right. You know, do you do you want to you know walk around you know mid level? That's fine. For a lot of people, mid-level is a huge win. Yeah, right. You know? <laughs> right. Um, well, mid-level you know. can be a lot of progress from where we're starting. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Totally. But you know, for me personally, it's like I always sort of have the attitude of I'm either moving closer to a drink or a drug or I'm moving away from it. You know, so I don't do well with just standing still. Mm. There is really no standing still for me. Mm -hmm. It's a fluid 
dynamic. And, you know, so there, yes, there's fear associated with that, but that's also the truth. That's also based on my experience. Um, so just doing that every night, it might sound more elaborate than it actually is. I yeah, think it right. might take me five minutes. Right. I'm you so know, glad you pointed that out because people are like, oh my gosh, how do you have time to yeah. do this every day? It's like, no, dude, it's a few minutes. <laughs> yeah. Really not a big task. You know, I mean, it's like scribble, 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 you know, sometimes if I, if I get like carried away with an idea, I'll, I'll write it out, but that's because sure. I'm a writer. You right. know, that's not part of necessarily the inventory process. So I definitely want to get into the book because I am in love with this book. You mentioned it, Killing Hurt. And I love when you were talking about it, really talking about the character. And this is something, as a lay person, I think about this all the time, like with television and movies, as well as books, where there is this whole character development piece that as the observer you don't always have that story, right? You don't get all the pieces that really go into developing these characters. So as you were talking about him and he's smart and how important that is to him, right? It's so cool to hear about that character development. Where did this character come from for you? Well, the the main character is really an amalgamation, you know, of, of a few different people, um, you know, um, plus you know, a handful of ideas and themes that come from, like we just talked about, my, my inventory. Um, so, you know, his circumstances come from a buddy of mine in in college who's actually still, you know, more or less my best friend. Um, hopefully he'll listen to this and that'll, <laughs> he'll be glad to know that I still think of him that way. <laughs> um, and, you know, that was, you know, the his, his sort of life story was, you know, was in college, his parents couldn't afford it, moved to Florida to become a corrections officer um, because that was the best job he could get without a degree at 19, became a police officer, you know, and, you know, some of the, you know, the the high level details around, you know, the marriage and, you know, those situations, you know, I sort of borrowed his life a little bit. He thinks I borrowed his life more than I actually did. He likes to read basically every positive attribute that this character has <laughs> as himself, you know, but, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to argue with him about that. Um, and the rest of it is really like combinations of, you know, a little bit of me, a little bit of this person. Um, you know, the, the guy is a, a sober surfer, um, which, I am those two things, you know, so people are like, oh, you wrote a book about yourself. Um, not at all. You know, I mean, this, this guy's very different from me in, in a lot of ways, which honestly made it a lot more interesting for me, you know, to, to write this because it's really not autobiographical. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so, yeah, I think you could say the same thing for the other characters. You know, there, there are pieces of like my sober crew you know, my fellowship group, there are aspects of each one of their stories or aspects of each one of their personalities, aspects of their professional or family lives that I've borrowed and sort of, you know, put this Frankenstein, you know, put these Frankenstein characters together based on, on all of them. So it is a little bit annoying, honestly, because they read the book and try to figure and try to, you know, read themselves into, because there's like one thing that they recognize, oh, that's me. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm, it's not, <laughs> you know, so I have a little bit of that, but, um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's more or less how this, the characters get developed. And I spent months writing out character sketches, um, you know, before I ever, 
you know, started on the story. Um, cause to me, that's everything that, it, that's the thing that I'm most interested in, honestly, is, is the people, uh, and their stories. Um, and then once I had, like, once I felt like I really knew these people, then like the book can kind of just write itself, you know, from there I had, mm. you know, kind of high level idea of the plot. Um, but the interactions and everything else and all the, you know, the, the things that, that happened there are just because I feel like I knew them really well. Mm-hmm. What inspired you to pursue writing a book in this genre? Well, um, you know, I guess I've always sort of thought of myself as a writer, you know, despite the fact that there isn't a, a long line of books behind me. <laughs> now, <laughs> you know, I guess I, that's an important <laughs> distinction to make too, right? Like you're not a career author. I mean, you're getting there now, but that's not what you've been doing your whole adult life, correct? That's right. Yeah, yeah that's right. I've had a career, you know, for the last 25 years um, in another field. Um, I did write a couple of novels early in life, like one in college and one in my early 20s that are dreadful. <laughs> I've, I've looked back at them recently and that, you know, it's like reading your journal from, you know, when you were 21, right. you know, it's like a little cringy. You the know? beauty is you get to see how far you've come. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take that. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah. So definitely some progress since then. Um, not just in terms of the, uh, the themes, but the writing. Um, and so, so what happened was I was actually out after a meeting at a, at the diner with my guys, um, and my sponsor mentioned to us that he had signed up and he had started a series of cla- acting classes. And I was he was talking about the acting classes, and I was thinking, "Gosh, that sounds amazing!" Like at this stage of life, you know, I mean, I'll I'm you know at that point I'm like 48 years old, you know, and I'm like at this stage of life to have that kind of creative outlet you know, it just sounded like such a luxury to me. You know, I was mm. like, I'm really impressed that he took the time to do this. I'm like, I wish I could do something. I'm like, wait a minute, I have a thing that I do, you know, why don't I just do that? You know, and, you know, sometimes the best ideas are the most obvious, mm-hmm. you know, and simple ones. And so I just sat down and started doing it. And uh, yeah, so that's how it started. How long did it take you to write the book? I mean, you just said you had months of character development. So really like from start to finish having a book in your hand, like how long? Well, the the first draft of it was probably about five months in in total, um, and then the editing process was you know probably another five, um, you know, way way longer than I imagined. Um, I was very lucky to find a couple of editors that um, understood what I was going for. Um, and really helped me sort of deconstruct it and put it back together again. Um, you know, a lot of the sort of flashback scenes that I have, you know, going to, um, the character's early life were more, um, you know, they're almost like essays initially and they were incredibly detailed. And so the consensus was, this is great source material, this does not belong in a novel, (laughs) you know, and I kind of knew that, like I said before, I read, you know, constantly and I knew it was different from, you know, but I, I had a hard time accepting that I needed to pare that stuff down by like 80%. Mm. And so the process of getting rid of these things that I had become really attached to, honestly, you know, the aspects of characters, stories that I thought were just so cool and so interesting 
And my editors were like, yeah, cool, interesting, not necessary, you know? (laughs) And so I I have like all this other material that had to get carved out, you know? And uh, like uh, Troy's father, Joe, for example, like I went down a rabbit hole with that character, like you wouldn't believe, you know? And I just was like infatuated with this guy and I wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote. I thought it was amazing. Like he was so interesting. And they were like, yeah, it's super interesting. Like that, yes, that is an inherently interesting human being, but (laughs) we're trying to tell a story here about this guy, (laughs) you know, so we probably don't want to go, you know, quite that far. You know what I'm saying? So there was a big part of it. That was a big part of the process. Yeah. What were some of your fears in writing the book? Um, I took a very low stakes approach to this, Angela. It was really like a, um, like a personal, um, project, um, toward the end, of course, there's a, uh, you know, a fear that, oh God, other people are going to read this actually. Um, and, um, so I think at that point, um, you know, the normal, I think, concerns about judgment and, um, you know, the, you know, one of the big fears was that, you know, the, the main characters, uh, parents are featured, you know, very prominently in the book. And I was concerned that my parents would be offended, you know, that some of the character traits and attributes of, you know, of those people, you know, made it into the book. Um, so that was a concern, um. But yeah, I think those are the main ones. Yeah. Okay. So tell everybody again, the genre, the name of the book and where they can get it. Okay. Uh, The genre is addiction fiction. Um, And whether you read my book or not, if you're in in addiction, I definitely recommend you get out there and get into addiction fiction. And my book reviews will point you to some other authors who are really talented in this space and, you know, can, can get you into it. Uh, the name of my book is Killing Hurt, and you can buy it pretty much wherever you buy books online, you know, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, you know, all those places. Perfect. I love that. This is such a good book. It was such a fun read, and I'm so looking forward to your next one, honestly. It was really great, and I'm going to explore some of these other addiction fiction books, too, because it is, it's just nice and relaxing and enjoyable, and I need more of that kind of reading in my life, too. So, One last question. What is your idea of a perfect evening? Like when you're winding down a busy week, right? I don't know your family situation, but work, kids, partners, whatever. When you get home on a Friday evening and it's unwind time, what does that look like? It's it's so uninteresting that I almost don't even want to say it. <laughs> I'm the you know same I mean? way. I get it. <laughs> I mean, I, I, almost, I always feel like I need to lie here, you know, to, to spice this up, but I'm not going to, uh, cause that'll end up in my inventory later. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, what my idea is, you know, so my wife's perfect idea would be for us to go out to dinner and, you know, either just us or, or with friends. Um, I would probably prefer to stay home, <laughs> you know, uh, order in. Um, I would love to be able to spend some time talking to my kids, but they're super busy. So, you know, I would try to steal, 
you know, a few minutes with each of them to, you know, get some kind of connections, you know, something that, you know, that I can look at and, and at the end of the day and be grateful for. Um, and then honestly just hang out with my wife, um, you know, and, and talk about what happened that week and hear about her week and try to try to reconnect there. Cause that's kind of my, um, she's kind of my plug into the world, you know? Um, so I need to like maintain that connection first and foremost. Um, and, you know, do my meditation at the end of the night. It's, um, always enjoyable and important for me and do my inventory. And, uh, I, I would like to, I, in the ideal circumstances, be asleep by 10 30 so that I, <laughs> so that I could get up by five and, you know, do my morning routine. It sounds like you are employing all of the most important factors of recovery and long-term recovery, right? It's connection, reflection, it's refueling, relaxation, self-care, like you're doing all of the most important things. And I mean, that looks different for everybody, right? But what a beautiful evening you just described. I'm glad you think so. <laughs> <laughs> and then the next night, take your wife out to dinner. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, thank you so much again for coming on and having this conversation with me. For everybody listening, I will link to the book in the show notes. It's called Killing Hurt. You can pick it up at all the major retailers, anywhere you buy books. And I definitely encourage you to check it out. It is an awesome read. Thanks again, Will. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. You've reached the end of another great episode of the Addiction Unlimited podcast. Candid and honest conversation about addiction and recovery. Be sure to visit us at addictionunlimited.com to join the conversation and access show notes and links to everything we talked about. Love this episode? Please take 30 seconds to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes to help us improve and give you the information you want. Thanks for listening. See you next week.